Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. We're along with my partners, Anne and Crystal. We do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. Okay, folks, I'll keep this quick. This week, at the request of a colleague, Nicole Press, sales manager for the Eastern Division at UBS, we reversed the roles, and I am the guest on my show. I have to say at first, I was kind of hesitant to do this, but was convinced that listeners might enjoy hearing the many stories I have locked up in my crazy brain, ranging from my day job to my career in media, and of course, my passion for music that has led to so many wonderful opportunities in my life, in the nonprofit world, and of course, everything Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, as many of you know, including one for my 93-year-old mom, B. Slater, or Queen B as my friend little Stephen Van Zandt calls her, who was a guest on a previous show. And I dedicate this episode to her as she has been such a positive force in my life and continues to be one during this very difficult pandemic period. To quote Bruce, The Wish, a song he wrote and performed on Broadway about his lovely mom, Adele. This one's for you, Ma. Let me come right out and say it. This show's a wee bit longer than most of my other episodes, so feel free to take breaks, grab a snack, go for a long run, whatever. I appreciate all of you for listening to this and all of the episodes so far, and I really appreciate any feedback that I've gotten in the past for future guests and past shows. Keep those cards and letters coming, folks, as my friend Larry King used to say. So, without further ado, I will turn the show over to Nicole. Thanks, Mitch, for that warm introduction, and hello to everyone out there in podcast lands. We are flipping the script, so to speak, and it's my turn this week to interview my good friend and colleague, Mitch Slater. Uh, We're putting him in the hot seat. I've been such a huge fan of his content, and over the last couple of months, we've been talking about his life and his background, and he has such a knack for storytelling, I thought, he should be his next guest. So Mitch, it's nice to see you or it's nice to hear you. And I'm going to start by lobbing you a soft one. I guess you can okay. start by giving me the story of how you got into business because you didn't start in financial services. No, no, I didn't. First of all, thank you, Nicole, for switching seats and being the interviewer. I much prefer being in your seat. I will always admit that. So my story really didn't start in the financial world at all. What My story really started out in the acting world, which I was very interested in and studied acting. And that kind of morphed its way into radio and TV while I was at school in D.C. and did tons of internship, interned for Howard Stern interned at NBC, at CBS. And then one day while I was at one of my internships at NBC, one of my heroes who I listened to on radio pretty much every night was a guy named Larry King. And I did the thing you're supposed to do. And I asked him to lunch. And what I wasn't aware of is that Larry pretty much held court at the Palm or another restaurant in DC every day. And this was his thing. So lunch, he was very happy to do it. And we had a wonderful time, and we talked sports probably 95% of the time, and 
I believe he says, what do you want to do? And I said, exactly what you're doing, but I'll never be as good as you, but I really would love to learn the business. And he said, well, as it turns out, we need a new overnight producer. Can you start Monday? Of course I can. This was March. I was graduating in May. I had a box of rejection letters from every radio station in America. There were no in computers, internet, emails, or anything like that. So I had written written away, and here I was being offered a job on the number one radio show in America, the Larry King Show, which was done out of the D.C. area. And I reported to work that night and had a wonderful, wonderful experience Uh, Loved my time working with Larry. I just learned so many things that were helpful to me and everything I've done in my life. And I continued in that field, let's say, for about seven years. I lived in D.C. I lived in Los Angeles, did that thing for a few years, worked on a few game shows, was actually a guest on a game show, The Love Connection. It was a crazy time, and I wound up moving back to New York. And still working in broadcasting and then moved to Philadelphia working in broadcasting. And that's about the time that I had met my now wife of 33 years. And she got a job in New York and I needed a job up here. And my dad, who was a Merrill Lynch account executive, which is what they were called back in 1987, said, I think you should do what I do. And I said, I think you're on drugs. I don't know why he would even suggest that. Uh, I've never read a Wall Street Journal in my life. We've never talked about this. He said, but you have the one skill that most people don't have in our industry, and that's communication. Because this is a business, he told me right from day one, about relationships and about communicating. And I met with his manager, a wonderful man, and he gave me an opportunity. And on October 19th, 1987, a pretty famous day in the world of the stock market, That was my first day at Merrill Lynch. After getting my licenses and back from training, I walked into work that Monday morning and the stock market had its single, to this day, hopefully never again, biggest crash of roughly 20%. And I looked at my dad and I said, good call. This was great. This is (laughs) going to be terrific. But as he explained to me and others did at the time, it was actually a really wonderful time to get into the business because most stockbrokers, as they were at that point, were not in the relationship business, and they were actually hiding under their desks, and they didn't know what to do. I had, obviously, everything to gain and nothing to lose, and I was a quick learner, and I realized right away I needed to develop relationships, and people were looking for relationships because they couldn't even talk to anybody. They, they Their stockbrokers weren't even returning their calls back then. and. I loved it. I loved it from day one. I loved the idea of meeting someone new all the time, getting to know their families. I was doing financial planning before it was the cool thing to do. I was just enjoyed the opportunity to have all of these relationships and fortunately had the opportunity to work with my dad after four or five years while I was at Merrill Lynch. And we had a we had a really great time together and built up a our business until I moved and started my team, which I'm with today, my partner and trainer and Crystal Wilkinson at Smith Barney in 2004. And that was going great until the financial crisis hit. And Citigroup, who owned Smith Barney at the time, was not where I wanted to be. And a true mentor of mine in this business 
It's a man named Bob Maholland, and he moved over moved over to UBS and gave me the opportunity and my team to join UBS in April of 2010. And that was really one of the best decisions I've ever made. And 11 years later, here I am. So Larry King, and we'll come back to that. I'm very sorry for your loss. But you know, two things that that you just said really resonated with me. And if you're going to learn in, 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 in any industry, you might as well learn from the absolute titans in that in those fields. So Larry King, Bob Mulholland, the stories you must have. I would love to have been a fly on the wall, you know, on the floor of 1987 or at the Palm in Washington, D.C. But you brought up the importance of having a relationship. And I know that that translates into relationships with your clients, but also relationships with the people who you surround yourself with on a daily basis. So I'd love to know a little bit more about your team and your practice, why it matters to have a team in place, who your partners are, and how you think that maybe they've helped you become a better version of who you are. So I would love to hear more about that. Great. And I love talking about my team because I'm I'm so proud of the team that we built. And I think, first of all, in any relationship in life, you have to have an accelerator and a break. And that's in, in marriage as well as work. And this is a team sport. The world of financial advisory is a team sport. In my opinion, it is impossible for a sole practitioner to really do justice and work with a number of different families, let's say. So I had the opportunity to meet my partner and trainer the day I got to Smith Barney and had come over from a firm that Smith Barney had purchased. And she was also kind of on the lookout for a team. She had just had her second child and she walked into my office at Smith Barney, saw a Bruce Springsteen signed album on the wall. And that started the conversation there. And we realized right away that we were very different but we were very similar. Our philosophy about business was very much the same. We both believed very strongly in the importance of financial planning, the importance of knowing our client and knowing their families and just being the best service that these folks can get and that they deserve. And if they're going to pay for our services, we wanna make sure that we're always there for them. And we shared that quality. Crystal, who has been our client sales associate the entire time, she was just on maternity leave covering another advisor whose assistant was on maternity leave. And let's just say I came over with somebody and that person realized immediately they didn't want to stay in the industry. And Crystal was just sort of handed to me, which was pretty challenging after 19 years in this business to have a brand new assistant. But talk about karma one of the greatest things that could have ever happened to me was Crystal Wilkinson just showing up. And I joked this day because to this day, because that's when she used to call me Mr. Slater. And now I cannot repeat what she calls me, but we've worked together for a long time. And we immediately embraced the team structure. We did all kinds of team training exercises. We went to different locations and learned how teams really work best together And we decided who was really good at this and who was really good at that. And it's really important because one and one needs to make three, not two. And you really can't have two. I'll use this. Oh, God, it kills me to use this example because I'm a New York Giant fan. But 
the reason the Tampa Bay Buccaneers just won the Super Bowl, everyone is going to give Tom Brady all the credit, but the reason they won the Super Bowl is they were a terrific team. They had a defense that was the best in the NFL. They had one of the best running games in the NFL. And of course, they had the GOAT at quarterback. And they combined all of those three things and took on a team that should have easily beat them. But that team was just not prepared for all three of those things to happen at once. And I think it's the same thing in our industry with relationships. So Anne, for example, is very, very strong. She's, as I put it, the brains of the outfit. She went to Cornell. I went to GW. So she's the Ivy Leaguer. But she's very, very, very good in the in the planning world and understands a lot of that. What people are need to look at and, and embraces all of the technology that we have to help make that happen. Crystal has all of the administrative skills that I lack, the organization skills that I keep trying to get better at, but still have sticky notes all over the place. And I had the ability to really understand the markets and understand the equity side and the fixed income side and also the marketing side and the branding side. So we were able to combine all of those three things together. So the experience for our clients is a pleasant one. And if it's a pleasant one, they will consider referring us to other people and we just love our clients. I mean, I honestly can say that. I may not have been able to say that in 1988 as a rookie in this business, but having done this now, you know, well into my third decade, we're working with just wonderful families who value our relationship and we value what they have to say. And this pandemic, in my opinion, has brought us, even though I haven't seen them in person and I love being in person with my clients, I think it's brought all of us even closer. So I love to hear you talk about your team. I know this is a podcast, but he always gets a little glimmer in his eye. So it's really just nice to hear that you guys work so well together after all these years. And I love the term accelerator at a break. I'm going to start using that for my own, as part of my own personal repertoire. And of course, as this Jersey girl can confidently say, a shared appreciation for Bruce Springsteen certainly doesn't hurt, but yeah, <laughs> never, never does. It never that, does. It's been one of my greatest marketing tools in my career has been Bruce Springsteen. So <laughs> I agree. I love it. So going back to Larry King, I can only imagine, and, and I hate to boil the ocean by asking this question, but what did you learn from him and, and how did it change who you are as a person and what you do in your career? or what you've done in your career. Without a doubt. And it's really interesting, Nicole, because at 21, you don't realize what you're learning, right? You think you know everything. I'm meeting celebrities every night, Frank Sinatra to Hank Aaron to Jimmy Carter. I mean, you know, I'm just this was just my life meeting all of these people. But what my focus was, because I wanted to be a broadcaster, was watching this man work. And there were two things that really, really stuck out to me that I learned from Larry early on. Number one is that you have to go through life with a form of curiosity. And curiosity comes in many, many different flavors, but really caring about other people and really wanting to hear their story. You know, Larry never would read the book if we had an author there. If there was a celebrity, he he didn't want like 10 pages of notes. You know, you sit there and 
having worked in the field, I've seen what it's like on the Today Show and all these other things. And and I mean, they've, you know, it's all computerized now, but you just, you can imagine what's in front of them. Larry would sit with a giant calendar in front of him that showed what guests were coming up and he would just have pen and paper and, and he would talk to people and he was curious. He would ask, I don't know, I'll use John Dean as an example, who was involved in, in the Watergate it was Nixon's attorney. And he would ask him a question that the guy or the woman walking down the street was thinking. It's like, when you first met Nixon, did you sense anything? You know, or whatever it would be. Or when he was talking to Jimmy Carter, the first thing he said to Jimmy Carter is, how did that feel losing? It was a really tough question, but he asked it in such a nice way. And Carter was so happy to have the opportunity to talk about this, because this was just a couple of years after Jimmy Carter lost the second election to President Reagan. And that curiosity for me has kept me, I think, at the top of my game always. So when I meet someone new, whether it's just someone I'm networking with, a potential client, a new friend, one of my kids' friends, whatever it is, I love to ask questions. And not overly personal questions, but I want to learn more. I really want to know. And this is going to sound a little weird, but I was, I was talking about Larry earlier today with someone who knew him very well. And this person told me a story that no one's heard that about three or four weeks before Larry passed away, he noticed that the nurses were not wearing blue. They were wearing white. They had just changed colors. And he just started interviewing a nurse. He's laying there and he's gotten off of the respirator. He was doing a little bit better at the time. And he started asking the nurse, why white? Why not blue? What's the history of nursing? It just kept going. And I could see that being annoying for some people. But I think at the end of the day, if you, and that leads me to the second part. The second part is the other thing that Larry taught me is that, and we all hear this, is that we were given you know, two ears and one mouth for a reason. But Larry, the way that he put it was that he never learned anything with his mouth open. He was always listening. So I've taken that for every part of my life. So when I first started dating my wife, I never talked about me which is not easy because I like to talk about me, but I didn't. I wanted to hear about her. She actually wanted me to do more of the talking as it turned out, but I really wanted to hear about her. It's the same way when I meet somebody new that I potentially may work with in any way, whether it's a client in this business or in anything else that I'm doing when I've served on the board of education, I listened. So as a board of ed member, when I sat there at my first five or six meetings, I went in there thinking I knew everything. And I realized after one meeting, I knew nothing, but I listened. I listened to what some of the people that were really experienced at the table were saying. And I listened to the superintendent and I listened to the parents and I listened to the teachers. And the art of listening is, I think, one of the most important skills that cannot be taught. You have to just learn the best way for you to do it. There's no I in team. I mean, you, you have to check your ego at the door and you really have to listen. So to answer your question, really listening and curiosity, I think are two skills that I was so lucky to meet a guy like Larry King and learn that from in my early 20s 
And now as I hit 60 this year, I am so grateful, not only for the friendship and the relationship and, and all the good times that I had with Larry, but from really those two things and observing him. And to be fair, from my father as well, because I watched to learn the business, I worked with my father. And I noticed both of those things in what he did. But I couldn't have put it better. I, I think people love to know that they matter. And sometimes the best way to show them is to listen and to ask questions about them. So that's a great life lesson, regardless of what industry you're in, right? Mm -hmm. But you just mentioned your dad. So more on the history of Mitch. I know you started with your father in 1987 on that very auspicious day in October. What are some of the differences between how your father did business in 1987 and now 34 years later? What's the big difference? I'll put a caveat on that from a marketing and branding perspective, because the investment side, although it changes, it kind of, the more it changes, the more it stays the same. I think that advisors have had an opportunity recently to really kind of change the way that they market and brand themselves. So I'd love to hear what your thoughts are, the difference between now and 1987. Well, I think, first of all, the main difference between now and 1987 is the computer and the internet. Okay. So we'll just start with that. And that changed everything because back in the 80s, whether you were at Merrill Lynch or Payne Weber or wherever you were or at a bank, you pretty much had all the information. You had access to everything. You had these books called value line books that had all of these great information. But today, it's all the information is out there. So the same thing in the marketing and branding world was going on. So your competition back then were the banks, and that was about it. Today, your competition, just like in every field, everybody's in broadcasting, everybody's in media, everybody's in finance, everybody's maybe not in medicine, but thinks they're in medicine one way or another. They probably do because they Google whatever illness they have and, and figure out how to take care of themselves. But specifically, my dad started in an era where you picked up the telephone. There was an actual thing that you picked up and you dialed some numbers and they gave you a list and you cold called. You actually just cold called people at eight o'clock at night and introduce yourself and see if you could get them to buy a stock. That would be what people did. Wasn't asking them questions. Wasn't asking them about their lives and what mattered wasn't talking to them about their children. There wasn't any financial education. It was just, do you want this investment or that investment? So I realized early on that was not going to be for me, that I needed to be in front of people. So for me starting out, what I noticed some people doing were holding seminars and getting out in front of the public. So, for example, if there was a topic that was very important to me, like raising financially responsible kids is something that's always been a big part of my practice, I would host seminars on that topic. I sometimes kid that I may have fed the entire state of New Jersey um, to do it, but that was one thing that I developed as a niche and to really get people thinking about their kids. And that's the most important topic to any parent is how their kids are going to handle finances. They don't teach it, which is a whole separate issue, but they're concerned about it. 
So seminars, I would go to trade shows, you know, in Atlantic City back then, there were all these different, the Javits Center in New York, there are all these different trade shows. So I would have a booth representing my company and representing my own business and talk to people and just meet people. And for me, the next extension was what I knew I was going to be good at, which was media. So I had a radio show in the 1990s in New York that I was actually able to syndicate in five different cities called Financially Speaking, the same name as the podcast, just a little bit of a different spin to it. It was probably more investment related, whereas for me, the podcast is, is a very, very different thing. And we'll get to that in a little bit. And then that led to television. And there's a station in New Jersey called News 12 New Jersey that someone knew me from another networking group and asked me to come on every Monday night and do a segment on a show called Money Mondays. And I would talk about whatever the topic was. This is while CNBC was really in its infancy. And I started doing that. And then they would interview me I think it was every Thursday night at 10 o'clock, I'd be at the station and the anchor would be in one room and I would be in another. And whatever the topic was, we would talk about. And that was, again, part of branding the side of my business of who I was. People do not see you on television or listen to your podcast and say, hey, that seems like he seems like a nice guy or she seems really smart. I'm going to call them and have them be my financial advisor or accountant or attorney. It's really more about the whole picture and building trust. Because at the end of the day, it's important that you're out there. But I don't think there was a lot of trust building in this industry in the 1960s and 1970s and 1980s. I think trust became a much more important feature in the 90s, and even more important in the 2000s after we had scandals and all 9-11 and, and all the other things that, that happened in the, the first five years of that decade. And to me, that would be the biggest difference is, to quote Billy Joel, a matter of trust. See, I can quote other people beside Bruce. And a Long Island boy at that. I mean, yes. those are some fighting words. I understand, but I do like Billy too. So. So I've got I, Billy Joel I, stories too. <laughs> I'm sure you do. I've, I've seen him my fair share of times. He's wonderful. One of the words that comes to mind when I think about you is just enthusiasm. You, you go into everything that you do with just this great vigor and zest. And I know it's an important word for you also. How has that helped you build the foundation for which your career is on. I am so glad you used that exact word. That's pretty Enthusiasm? Incredible. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have to tell you, because when I, I've been involved in training throughout my whole career, no matter which firm that I was at, training younger advisors. And the most important moment for me in starting out in this business was during my training period. There was a gentleman, and I will give his name, Al Martella. I think he may have retired recently. And he was one of the trainers. And back then there were not whiteboards, they were just chalkboards. And we were in a room and there was, I don't know how many, 300 people in that room. Uh, they used to train just about anyone that they could breathe back then. And he wrote the word enthusiasm on the board. 
And he underlined the last four letters, I-A-S-M. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, I'll be back in a minute. The secret to your career is right there. And then, you know, very dramatic, this guy, <laughs> loved it. Came back into the room and he said, does anybody know what those four letters are? And everyone guessed all kinds of things, but nobody nailed it. I am sold myself. He felt, and he was absolutely correct, that whether you were doing what I do for a living, doesn't matter what you were doing for a living, honestly. Being enthusiastic is very important. It brings positive endorphins. It shows people, A, that you care and that you believe in what you're talking about. But if you are sold on it, and I don't mean sales in the sales world, you know, because the word sales has all kinds of connotations, but it's more about believing. Like if I wish the word was enthusiasm or something, because (laughs) it's not so much sold, it's really believing. But I've thought about that every single day that I've come to work in the last 14 months. That means I get out of my bed, I come into the next room and I sit down. But when I would actually go to work (laughs) and do that, I thought about that because I always feel that I can't have a bad day, that somebody else is probably having a worse day. And it was hard. It's There's been days that have been very difficult in the financial services industry, especially back in 2008 and 2009. But I had a partner and we worked out a plan and we made sure that at least one of us during that time was positive. And and I don't mean Pollyanna positive. I mean, just show that some enthusiasm, some excitement, and I really feel like that rubs off in everything that I've done, whether it's been in, in acting, whether it's been in radio, whether it's been in this career, whether it's been even you know during my term on the Board of Education, being involved in the nonprofits that I've been involved in with my passion, which is music. Being excited, it rubs off. You can tell when there's negative energy, it's not a good thing. I'm far from the king of meditation, and I'm terrible at it, but I do make attempts at it to find some kind of peace through using things like Headspace and Calm or whatever out there to, to help me get in that mood. And working out certainly is another big part of it. Anything that's going to get the endorphins going, but enthusiasm amazing that you just picked that word because that really, at the end of the day, in every conversation I've had with anyone in any business, my kids' friends who are going into whatever they're going into and they call me for advice or they hit me up on LinkedIn, I always talk about enthusiasm. I I mean, I couldn't agree with that more. I love that. I am sold myself. A piece of advice that I got very early in my career is whatever you put back into the universe is what you get back. So I feel very strongly about being positive and the power of it. So I couldn't agree with that more. And and as someone who has worked for UBS for quite some time, I like to say I drink the Kool-Aid and my favorite flavor is Swiss chocolate. So (laughs) (laughs) feel free to steal that. That's Um, okay. I love it. I love it. (laughs) So you gave us a glimpse into your media career, but I'd love to hear more about Financially Speaking, the podcast. What do you hope to get out of 
putting yourself out there on a weekly basis? And how do you hope to help people and entertain them at the same time? Uh, and for anyone who's ever listened to any of your podcasts, they are certainly entertaining. I love podcasts, just like I love radio. I mean, if I could choose any career, still it would be radio, which is a very different world than it ever was, because I love talking to people. And I love talking to people about things that matter. And I also love music. So for me, when I decided to bring the podcast to UBS and remembered what I had done successfully with the radio show and having listened to so many podcasts myself, I mean, I don't walk my dogs without listening to podcasts. It's just, there's so much out there. I mean, while we're doing this interview, quite frankly, there's probably a hundred new podcasts being started. It's a crowded space. And I don't really... I don't care at the end of the day how many listeners. I mean, I interviewed Guy Raz, who has one of the best podcasts out there, How I Built This. And it's if you haven't, anyone listening to this show knows I interviewed him. But what he said to me, which was I thought was so great, is, you know, Mitch, when I first started doing uh, radio and podcasts, maybe I had 100 listeners. And someone said to him, he says, where in the world can you go? and stand on a street corner and have 100 people listen to what you have to say. And now he has 110 million monthly listeners. So he, he has like a planet listening to him. But I think what I love the most about it is each week I'm, I'm learning something. And if I can learn something, then my listener can learn something. And our industry has plenty of content. But most people, I don't think, want to listen to the investment side. They're more interested in the human side. And that's what my show really, for me, is what I'm hoping to give people, is a little taste of humanity and a little bit of fun. So one week, we may be talking to Butch Patrick, who played Eddie Munster. And then the next week, I'm speaking to Joel Peterson, who's the chairman of the board, of JetBlue, who teaches at Stanford. And then the next week, I'm talking to Winnie Cooper, Danica McKellar, who was on The Wonder Years, but writes these incredible books for young girls about math. I mean, just so there's, there's always sort of a tie-in to the financial world. So the musicians that I've talked to, whether it's been Johnny Resnick from the Goo Goo Dolls or Steven Van Zandt or Nils Lofgren or coming soon, Jewel, Yes, I want to talk music a little bit, but I really want to hear their story about their career. And many of them say the same thing. They knew nothing. They had no financial education. So they were taken. Usually every successful musician, entertainer will probably tell you a story about how their first success, they made so many mistakes because they trusted a manager or they trusted someone they, without really knowing anything about them. And so I love to hear those stories. And we're usually able to bring those stories out. But I also want to have humor. I'm having another professor from Stanford on, Jennifer Ocker, who is one of the great marketing professors in the world. And I actually took a class with her at Stanford in a program years ago that my firm was doing uh, for two weeks out at Stanford. And she has a book about humor in business that's out right now. And she wrote it with a comedian. I can't wait to get the book. I should have it any day. And, and we're going to talk about humor in the business world. So financially speaking, 
I kept the title, honestly, as a homage to someone who had tremendous impact in my life, my Aunt Annette. I was very fortunate to not just have great parents and an incredible grandfather who lived to be 97, who emigrated from Russia when he was six and built from the scratch up a photography business. But I had an aunt who had been an actress and a dancer and had written for television in the early days, but she was kind of a, a mentor to me. And she introduced everything about England to me. I became an Anglophile and I knew all the Monty Python stuff when nobody else had heard of Monty Python. And I was learning British music on my own, but from the art side, she really taught me so much. So when I went to create the radio show back in 1994, I said to her, I said, okay, Annette, give me a name. And she gave me a list of five names and she circled one. She says, I really think this is the best one. And it was financially speaking. And I lost her in 2007. And I knew when I started this podcast that I just had to keep that name. And one other story I'll, I'll, I'll share, because I think it's another part of my life that I have great pride in, is that my wife and I were able to take my aunt, who never traveled at all, afraid to get on a plane, just wasn't her lifestyle. When she was diagnosed in January of that year with pancreatic cancer, I went to my parents and I said, I need to take Annette to London. She needs to see the West End. She needs to see a show. She needs to see the crown jewels. And I remember my dad saying to me, you're crazy. She'll never go. Well, we wound up taking her around Memorial Day for an incredible week. It was not easy, but she pushed herself and we did everything first class and had a driver and she knew more than the driver. She was telling them that they were wrong. And, you know, it was just so exciting for her to see London and experience something that was so important to her. And sadly, she passed away three days after we we got back. And when I think back on my life and my legacy, I always come back to that moment. And I credit my wife because she came with me on this trip and supported this idea. And being able to give back to somebody in your family or a friend that meant so much to you and to do it while they're still here is really so important. So that story made me think of her. So I just always love to mention it. I love that story. And it sounds like Annette and I would have gotten along very, very well because I am and she loves Scrabble and we played Scrabble and she, oh, did she love Jeopardy? I love Jeopardy as a kid. And uh, I, I picture her playing with Alex Trebek somewhere at this point, because I, I know how much she loved watching Jeopardy every night, as does my mom, who still, still watches too. Uh, Jeopardy with Alex Trebek and Scrabble with Larry King. How about that? <laughs> that sounds That's great. That's what she's up to. <laughs> Speaking of, and circling back to a name that has been peppered throughout this interview today, you've attributed a lot of your success to Bruce Springsteen. And we've talked about this both online and off, but how have you also been able to use that relationship to help your nonprofit endeavors? Because I know you're very active in that space. For me, I love music. I play piano. I played in a couple of little bands growing up. And just so music has always been a big part of who I am. I 
really started my passion with Bruce Springsteen in the, I guess, the mid 70s when I first started seeing those live shows. And obviously was a tremendous fan of his music and his lyrics. And obviously being in Jersey, kind of hard to not get into Bruce. But I really appreciated Bruce when I wasn't living in New Jersey and, and realized how much I missed him. And and the great irony, and Bruce talked about this on his uh, on his Broadway show, is that his goal, which was very similar to mine, which was to get as far away from his hometown. And ironically, he lives less than two miles from where he grew up. And so do I. I always thought that was really interesting when he brought that up in the show. But I knew that I wanted to be able to do something with music and children. And I just didn't know what it was. And from being on the board of ed, I knew that, that there wasn't enough things happening in the arts. Everybody's into STEM. But as Steve Van Zandt says, it really should be STEAM. So it's important to have science and technology and engineering and mathematics, but put that A in there. Okay. So I have to credit Twitter of all places was commenting on something that Stephen Van Zandt's wife, Maureen, wrote. And I got a private message from her. Now, at that point, I had been to maybe 250 concerts over the years, but I, I didn't know these people. I didn't have a relationship with them. And she invited me to an event with an organization that she was on the board called Little Kids Rock. And that event, they were honoring Stephen and Bruce performed. And it was, it was a wonderful event. I was able to bring a number of clients to. But most importantly, I met the guy who ran Little Kids Rock, a gentleman named Dave Wish, who's been on my show. And Dave was a frustrated teacher, didn't like the way that they were teaching music in school. So these kids were just, they were dropping out. They would have to play an instrument in elementary school, and then they'd have to be maybe in band, and then that's it. But he found out that if you taught kids to play the music that they were into, okay, so if you like a Taylor Swift song, we're going to teach you a Taylor Swift song. If you like a Jay-Z song, you like Alicia Keys, or you like her, or you like Bruce Springsteen, whatever it is, that's what they're going to teach you. So Little Kids Rock, I met Dave, we had lunch. He liked my background and my experience, and I was able to join the New York Advisory Board for about four years. And it was so rewarding, not just being able to help raise money and, and the events, which were cool and everything, meeting all of the, the rock stars, so to speak, but going to the schools and seeing these programs in action and seeing these kids learn all of these songs. And we were getting all of the equipment donated from Gibson, the guitars or Yamaha for the keyboards. And it just was such a natural fit for me. And I love the experience. I loved everyone I met through it that did develop a relationship with Steve Van Zandt because Steven was the music director and Steven started his own outreach foundation that kind of jumped off a of little kid's rock called Teach Rock, where we actually have a curriculum and I'm involved with them right now, where we have a curriculum that teaches the history of rock and roll alongside the American history. So if they're doing a program on the 50s and 60s, when they're talking about Rosa Parks and they're talking about whatever's going on in the world that ties into maybe Elvis Presley and where his influences are, or the real reason that the Beatles were a success in America was because of the Kennedy assassination. This country was very depressed and very sad. And along come these four kids from Liverpool 
with these really happy songs. I want to hold your hand and you tie in the history together and it's a wonderful thing. But I think really the most important point that I could make is that I was able to translate the passions in my life with my work and combine the two together. And I think that's so important that people do that, that you somehow figure out a way, if you love music or you love dance, whatever it is that you tie in and you give back in that world, it's going to give back to you. So the opportunities that I've had to be really close on Bruce's last tour and being at all these very, very special events that Bruce and Steven and interview Nils Lofgren and his band recently on my show have brought to me, like you said, you put something out in the world and it comes back to you. I I think that this is another great example is that I put myself out there. Every one of these things that I put myself out there, there's always been someone that said to me, why are you getting involved with that? Why are you doing that? You're crazy. What, 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 you're going to run for board of education. Why are you doing that? What, what little kids rock? What, what, what is that? Well, every single one of those things that I've done, and I hope to continue to do so many more. I'm only 60. I got, I got a long time to go and a lot of things that I need to do. But at the end of the day, the more that you get involved in that you can give back and you can help others, the reward, the rewards of giving are so much better than the rewards of getting. And I think I've realized that even more during the pandemic. I couldn't agree with that more, especially now that we have so much more time alone with ourselves and our thoughts. It really makes you think about what kind of person you are and what you, how you want to be remembered. So hats right, off but it to is. You. But we've had enough, and it's yeah. time. Oh, yes, obviously. Oh, hugs, remember those? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's, it's really great that we had that time in there. And there's and for me, having both of my kids home for an extra year was a bonus before they went back into the city. Just made life easier for them and for us, but really ready to get back and be in an office and, and be back in New York from time to time and, and just really... Uh, miss going to California three times a year. I mean, there's lots of different things that uh, I'm ready to get back and do. That sounds like absolute heaven. I'm right there with you. So we just talked a little bit about, you know, your philanthropic work and you've spoken a few different times during our hour together about your, your experience as an elected official with the Board of Education. Why is, I know that education is important to you, but for focusing on financial education, why is that so important to you? Well, it's really simple. We're really great at a lot of things in America. We're not good at this. In fact, we're ranked 14th, I think, right now in the world when it comes to financial education. The numbers are, are staggering and nothing has changed. My friend, Neil Godfrey, who writes books on kids and money, and you can hear the interview I've done with her and she has a new book coming out. She talks a lot about the Donna Reed generation where people grew up This was a TV show for those of you that are under the age of uh, 40, that mom wore pearls while she was vacuuming and dad would come home from work. Mom, of course, never worked and dad would have his slippers and the family would sit down and eat at six o'clock. And, oh, they never talked about money. And the reality is, is that most families, including my own family, it was easier to have the sex talk 
than the money talk. The money talk, for some reason, in many countries, and ours especially, has been taboo. And it's not been part of the education system. So what happens? What happens is, is you have people at every different age that are clueless. And the clueless ones, unfortunately, sometimes get matched with the really bad people that take advantage of the clueless ones, all right? And that upsets me more than anything. And I see that at every age. I see that certainly with widows that we've worked with over the years that, well, my husband handled that and they knew nothing about this. And no, 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 just have my accountant handled it or something like that. And that's fine. You should always have extra professionals in your life helping you, but this is your money and you should take ownership. And it all starts in the younger grades. And that's where the help has to start. We have to start teaching kids money basics from early on, whether it's allowances, whether it's chores, whether it's putting certain money away for charity. My kids had three jars, one for short-term savings, one for longer-term savings, and one for charity. And that, that I learned from my friend Neil in one of her books. I was fortunate to be involved in helping mandate financial literacy in the state of New Jersey. It's actually a class that you have to take for a semester in high school. And it's a start, and there's about 20 states so far that are doing that. But this has to be a national effort, because then the next step is I meet these people when they're in their 20s or 30s, and they're in their first job, and they're looking for help with their retirement plan. Maybe I'm working with their company and I'm the person that's speaking with them. And I hear the same thing. I hear, oh, my boyfriend's going to handle that or my girlfriend's going to handle it. No, my dad's going to handle it. I don't want to know anything. It's just, I don't blame them because no one sat down and taught them. And I just hope and I've made this a mission, and I'll continue to make it a mission. We do it with our clients, certainly. But parents, if you can, teach your children well, to use uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And part of doing that is teaching them about budgeting and teaching them what it's going to cost for their first apartment. I go back to 2008 and 2009, and I remember things were really, really bad. And this was just an idea that my wife and I came up with was we wanted to show our kids that we were struggling. These were tough times, all right? So we decided for that month, we were going to pay our bills in front of our kids. We had a 15 and an 11-year-old at the time. And they were old enough to understand that this is how much, you know, you want to have, cell phones were starting at the time, you want to have, that's what the cell phone costs. That's what your Nintendo games are going to cost. But on the other hand, we have to pay the water bill. We have to pay the electric bill. We have to pay this thing called a mortgage every month. We have to pay taxes to live in this really nice town that has all these parks and all these wonderful services that you get to enjoy, including your school and your police and your fire. And I actually went to the bank and took out a bunch of cash and we put down the bills to show them. And I was explaining that right now, there's about seven of those bills on that table. I can't pay. What am I going to do? And we had the conversations with them. Well, maybe we don't need this. Okay. Maybe we don't have to go, no offense to Starbucks, love Starbucks. Maybe we don't have to go to Starbucks five days a week, whatever it is. It's just giving your kids an education at an early age 
especially in, uh, teenagers as well, on the value. You know, everyone talks about teaching their kids the value of money, but they don't really teach it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's just up to the schools. I think it's also part of something that should be parenting. So when they grow up and they're, my friend Erin Lowry is known as the broke millennial, and I've had her on my show, and she writes a blog and she's written a book. And she talks about relationships and how that when you start dating somebody, you need to get financially naked in front of them. It's just, it sounds bizarre, but you need to know how much student loan debt that person has, how much credit card debt. You want to know these things now, not 10 years from now. And maybe you have solutions in working these things out. So there's no surprises. Most divorces happen because of money. Anyway, financial education, we have to get better at as a country. We obviously have a lot of other issues that take precedent in, in, in our country right now with the pandemic. But it's really critical, and I've wherever I can be involved, I have been. And serving on the Board of Ed, that was probably the main thing that I worked on, was making sure that, that the schools were at least doing their part. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with that more. I actually saw a meme recently, a kid to a teacher, hey, can you teach me how to balance my checkbook? And the teacher says, no, now shut up and square dance. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's so funny. Somebody, someone, I, I read something, I think it was on Twitter the other day. It said, my dad said that they used to have to climb ropes when they were in gym. And I was thinking back to being in gym class in the in the late 60s. And yeah, we had, you know, in order to graduate high school, you had to climb this rope. Now, okay, <laughs> great to be exercising. I'm all for it. But maybe a little bit less rope climbing and trigonometry and geometry and algebra and I mean, these are all important things. and But at the end of the day, teach real world issues right. now. And I love, by the way, and I have a podcast that's coming out very soon because UBS has does a program with a company called EverFi. And they have this tremendous platform, all digital. It's almost like a, a Netflix for financial learning. And we're able to work with our clients and help their kids and show them all of these things. And Everfi has done some really great job that I'm really excited that UBS is partnering with them. And I can't wait to unveil that show in a few weeks because I learned so much about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think it's great that our firm is doing that. And I just hope that more and more companies get involved and teach money basics. Yeah, we're getting very involved from from the ground up. I mean, even our rising gen segment, there's a lot to unpack there. So couldn't agree with you yes. more. So we've talked about Larry King. We've talked about your dad. We've talked about Bruce Springsteen. We've talked about your wife. We've talked about Annette. There's <laughs> one person that is missing from this equation. Tell us about your mom. So I'm a lucky guy. I mean, listen, to have a mother at 93 that I like I have with the energy and the positive attitude is an absolute gift. But this is the same woman I've known my whole life. I mean, my mom and I have always been, maybe because I'm the baby of the family, my sister's 10 years older, my brother's six years older. So I kind of grew up an only child. And my dad at that point, before he started with Merrill Lynch, was in another career where he was traveling a lot. And we became very close and always had a good friendship. But since my dad passed away, I guess now 12 years ago, we were very concerned 
well, what's my mom going to do? She's just going to fall into a ditch. I mean, how is she going to handle it? And we immediately, and this I credit my wife with, because this is while I was on the board of ed, every Tuesday night, my wife works at Time Magazine. They're closing the magazine. She's working late. I'm at the board of ed meetings. These kids got to be fed. There's got to be somebody here. And we gave my mom a project. So for a few years, and she was you know, in her mid-80s at the time, early to mid-80s, she came over and she cooked dinner every Tuesday night, and, and they had Tuesday nights with B. I mean, it became like a friend that each kid would invite a friend, and it just became this wonderful ritual. So she was always involved, but she was always wanting to get involved in the things I was doing. She was always took an interest, and she knew of my... I call it passion. Some call it obsession in the Bruce Springsteen world. And I decided that I was going to take her to see Bruce, which I did. And we saw a couple of shows on, on a few tours. And those were not, so folks know, I was not standing in the pit with my mom and forcing her to be part of that. We had seats or we were in a, a box. But as I got closer to Steve Van Zant, I wanted to take my mom to see Steven's band, Little Steven and the Disciples of Soul. So I had just started doing videos with my mom where I was interviewing her about different aspects of her life. She was turning 90. We went back to the neighborhood in West Philadelphia and we walked with her and she, and she physically showed where she grew up and told stories. And I would ask her to talk about what life was during World War II, during the Depression, the Kennedy assassination, really things that her great-great-grandchildren one day will be really glad that I did. So we were going to go see Steven and I said, let's make a video. I've got one of his shirts, hold up his album and tell people how excited you are. Maybe we'll sell a few tickets for Steven. And we made this little video. And the next night I was seeing Steven because I was pretty much going to every show on locally on this tour. And I was uh, after the show, Steven sits and talks to some special guests. And I was fortunate enough to be part of the crew doing that. And he's sitting there with his glass of wine that he always has at the end of his concert. And he goes, Mitch, come here, come here, come here. He says, he says I've got an idea about your mom. What's your email? I said, uh, I wrote it down or I put it on his phone. He says, I'll, I'm going to let you know. And I had no idea. What is he talking about? I knew he had seen the video that she did. And I woke up the next day and there was an email at 2.30 in the morning with a script. And basically the script was, an opening for the concert. And basically he was telling me that a week from that night, there was going to be a show at the St. George's theater in Staten Island seats, maybe 3,500 beautiful, beautiful old theater. And he wanted my mom to introduce the concert. And my mom, <laughs> this is right about the time she turned 90. I said to my brother, sorry, Jeff, you hear this all the time. But I said to my brother about this, oh, she is not going to do that. I, I, you know, you, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Well, I went over there and I had the script on an iPad on like a teleprompter app. And I said, just start reading this. And she read it and she read it. And then, you know, she's not a stupid person. She figured out what's going on here. And I said, well, tomorrow night when I take you to see Stephen, you're not just going to see Stephen. You're actually going to introduce the show. She said, Really? That's so cool. <laughs> and she did. And, you know, giant red curtain behind her. And probably one of my favorite videos is, is Stephen and my mother practicing and Stephen yelling at the light guy and basically Stephen being Silvio from The Sopranos 
and it was hysterical and she did a great job and and afterwards people came up and they wanted selfies with her and quite frankly a star was born and a few weeks later i get this message on facebook from a casting agent who was in the process of casting a commercial print ad for jdate which is a jewish dating service and the concept of their campaign was to have old jewish women sitting at a computer working all hours of the night yentas as as a lot of old jewish women are called or matchmakers for those fiddler on the roof fans and she would be there and you know they'd be working hard coding all night to find dates for their grandson or their granddaughter to find a nice <laughs> jewish girl or whatever it was and I called my mom up and I you know she was in King supermarket walking around when I called she she loves telling the story she was in the meat section and I told her I said you're going on an audition next Wednesday and it was right before Thanksgiving and she said okay let's do it and again my brother also thought she would do this I think by the third time he figured she would she crushed it you know it was hysterical it was like a Woody Allen movie there are all these old Jewish women sitting around reading their lines, getting ready to go in for their two minutes. They loved her. I was in the room with her when she did this and they kept her in there a half hour. And she won the lead of the role of lead Yenta, which meant that she got the, you know, her picture was the one they used the most. She got paid the most. The billboards were everywhere. They were all over the New York. There are a number of different cities. They were above Junior's Cheesecake on Flatbush Avenue in Brooklyn there's no phone booths anymore so the charging stations all over the city people were seeing them people were finding out about them she got calls from tv stations every jewish newspaper including ones in europe and israel interviewed her as the face of the jdate campaign the woman just steven called her queen b and steven came up with a twitter page for her and suddenly she had more followers than me in 20 minutes oh, which i'm still funny. angry about um <laughs> I'm surprised she didn't get verified. About a year later, Maureen, Stephen's wife, who was lovely, also been a guest on my show, Maureen Van Zandt, not just someone who was on The Sopranos. She was in the original cast of Hair. She dated Jimi Hendrix. She was at Woodstock with Jimi Hendrix. I mean, that talk about a life, that mm -hmm. incredible, incredible woman and, and as generous as could be. So she had the idea for Stephen's final concert. This was about a year and a half ago in Asbury Park to have Stephen had written a song called soul twisting and that she wanted my mom on stage with her and some of her friends dressed as go-go dancers and twisting. And there we were in May of whatever it was. And it was the day before her 92nd birthday. And she got up on stage and what I knew was going to happen. She didn't know is that in the wings waiting to come out was Bruce Springsteen. Wow. So. There she is dancing and she goes and who's right in front of her to help her back to her chair, Bruce. And she sits down and she has this conversation with Bruce and she had taken her hearing aids out <laughs> before the performance. <laughs> so to this day, she's not really sure what she said or what he said, but the picture that was taken really told it all. So kind of, I'm just so proud, forget all of the reasons why, but the fact that she's she's even stayed positive during this difficult time. She's been in our bubble. My brother, unfortunately, lives in North Carolina, so he hasn't seen her in a year. It's been very hard for him. My sister's here in New Jersey, but 
She hasn't seen her great grandchildren very, very few times. Drive bys. We for her birthday, we had a whole thing with fire trucks and good humor man and all kinds of stuff. But she's managed to keep a positive attitude, and just like her dad was. So I'm very, very proud of her. And people that kind of know me in the social media world because of Bruce, they really know my mom. And I got to credit Stephen for uh, uh, starting all of that. But you know what? Honor thy mother and father. You know, I feel so fortunate that for everything I learned from my parents and that they gave me. And the most important thing that they taught me is about kindness and how important it is to just be nice to people. Mm-hmm. Jewel is an upcoming guest on this show. And she wrote that great song and in that one line, only kind in the end. Only kindness matters. And I think about that a lot because that's really what I've taken from my parents and especially my mom and being positive. And thank you for bringing her up. She definitely is a big influence in in my life and my friends who have been just amazing to my mom as well. Well, I've been really lucky. She's definitely got one more fan waiting in the wings or, or another bee in the hive. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So lightning round. Okay. Before we wrap up our time together this evening, I have a couple questions that I'm going to throw your way. Number one, this, and I know you ask everyone this question, so I'm going to, I'm going to throw it back on you. Oh no. If you could have a billboard for the world to see, what would it say and why? You know, I've asked that question 85 times and I'm always thinking about what I'm going to say, and it's been very interesting. And the question, so people know, to credit Tim Ferriss in his book, Tribe of Mentors, he asked a number of very famous people that question. And the one thing that's been very true, and it's interesting, we just talked about kindness, because people have something to do with kindness, usually, in their saying. But for me, it's going to have to be a Springsteen line. It just going to have to be. I mean, that's just it. So I guess if I had to think about what matters to me in life and what matters to me, I would take the line from Badlands where Bruce sings, talk about a dream and try to make it real. And what I love about that line and those two lines, and actually, to be perfectly frank, that's how I became a Bruce Springsteen fan. The first song I heard him play was Badlands in September of 1978 at the Meadowlands. And I just love the idea that people talk about things and they never go ahead and do it. And for me, I try as much as I can to make something happen and make it real. And and that line, talk about a dream and try to make it real. I think the world really needs, yes, they need to hear, I think Jules' only kindness matters would also fit beautifully. But dream, dream big and go for it because this is your life. This is your one chance. And life is hard. It is really hard and it's disappointing and, and frustrating and sad and, and all of these things. So be positive, but talk about a dream and try to make it real. That would be what I would have on my billboard. I love that. I'm envisioning it before the entrance to the Holland Tunnel. Second question. If you could sit down and have dinner with four people, dead or alive, who would they be? Uh, 
my God. Wow. <laughs> that is a great question. It's actually interesting because it's a question my brother does a lot with his, when his daughters were growing up, he used to come up with questions of the night with, with his kids. And, and we used to talk about that. And this is actually something that we did when my kids were younger and it's really, really hard. But for me, I would probably take different aspects of my life and have those people at that table that I think are either my heroes or people that I really want to find out. I'm just curious, getting back to curiosity. So I would probably, I guess if I would start with things that matter to me, and I'm, I'm actually going to skip the music side and shock people and not have Bruce Springsteen at the table. Actually, I'd be more interested in talking to, to Judy Garland or something like that. But Judy's sitting at, at the children's table, so she's not there. <laughs> it would probably come from the world of sports. And I would want Muhammad Ali. He would be one of the, definitely one. I admire Muhammad Ali, pretty much my top five people that I admire in the history of this world for so many different reasons. Not because I loved boxing and not because of his accomplishments, but really what he stood for. And he stood for things that people in this country were afraid to stand for. And he did it in an outspoken way. And people may have not liked that. But as he got older and he dealt with his own setbacks with Parkinson's, just had a tremendous admiration. So I'd love to sit with Muhammad Ali and I'd love to talk to him about the 60s and really understand a little bit of where he got the guts to not go to Vietnam and take the consequences and, and lose the title. Then the history side of me is, is going to come up. And that's a big, big part. And Abe Lincoln would have to have a seat at that table. I'm fascinated by presidents. I've, I used to read these books about presidents as a kid and study presidents and there are many other presidents that I have tremendous admiration, but especially today, I would want to sit down with Lincoln and I would want to understand how we got through that civil war, how this country was able to unite and stay together and where he got the courage to work with others that just disagreed with him. I think of the Doris Kearns Goodwin book and who's another absolute idol of mine and and that he was able to, to work with other people. So I'd love Lincoln to be there. And he also came from nothing, had dreams and made them real. The one thing I would tell him, though, is to skip the theater. That definitely, <laughs> I would say, don't go to the show that night. Which ironically, his wife- Got terrible reviews anyway. Three times told him, I don't want to go to the theater. She tried. <laughs> True story. Always Three, listen to your wife. Yes, exactly. The Anglophile <clears throat> in me- that's hard because there's so many interesting people from that world. But I think I've read just about every book on Winston Churchill, and I would just have to meet the man. For anyone that's been in the Churchill War cabinet rooms in London and saw what his life was like during the war and what sacrifices he made and how he was politically rags to riches, rags to riches, and he literally saved. I think he saved humanity Yeah, because he's, he's the reason that Roosevelt got in the war. And it's just so, yeah, he, he was just, 
uh, they're all the sayings and everything that's out there that people remember them for. And I also worked on a one-man show that I helped produce with James Mason playing Churchill. And I got to learn more. And I actually met Churchill's granddaughter and I think a grandson when we were doing that. So such admiration for Churchill. I guess the last person would be my dad. I would love the opportunity, most of all, to let my dad know how well, and you brought up my mom, how well my mom has done in the last 12 years. He'd be so proud of her. Yeah, he'd be proud of his kids and all that we've done, and that's great, but he'd be proud of her. He was very optimistic. He went to Valley Forge Military Academy. He didn't get into West Point because he had flat feet, but or he would have served in the war. But he loved our country, and he was always on the right side of issues. My dad was part of a group of people that brought Martin Luther King to speak at our temple in Springfield, New Jersey wow. in the 1960s. And he was very involved in public service. And I just, I'd really love to, I'd love that one more conversation. I was unfortunately in California bringing my son home from a college program when my dad passed away suddenly. So I did not like many people get the chance to to say goodbye. But I don't want it's not so much that I need to say goodbye. I really kind of want to A thank him for giving me the opportunity he gave me to get involved into this business, which was not in the life plan that I was expecting. But I'd really love for him to know how things have gone in the last 12 years. Maybe not so much in the world, but in our family. So my dad would definitely take that last seat at the table. I think that's an excellent group, uh, quorum, I should say, of individuals. I respect that answer immensely. So finally, and before we wrap up, what's the one thing that people don't know about you? <laughs> that's actually a funny question for a lot of reasons. And if you would ask my wife and my kids, they would say, Dad, they know everything because you tell everybody everything because you're very active on social media. So I'll kind of answer it in two different ways. I mean, the one thing that many people don't know about me, maybe because they haven't seen it on social media, is that I was on a game show. I was on a show called Love Connection where 57%, not that I'm really proud of it, but 57% of the audience chose me to go out on a date with this young woman from Malibu, California in 1983. And that whole experience was just a hoot. And we're actually Facebook friends and years later, and I hadn't, someone had taped it. So I, I do have the video of that. But really, I think the one thing that people don't know about me is that deep down, I'm actually really shy. And I may really? come across, yeah, I really come across as the extrovert and come across as a guy that's out there but at social gatherings, I tend to stay in the background. There's a side of me that, that is, is definitely shy and doesn't come out all the time, but I'm not on all the time as people think I am. And you know, social media creates the FOMO effect and everything else, and people think your life is wonderful and everything is great. But you know, I'm like anybody else. I'm shy. I've gone through periods of dealing with sadness and anxiety and all of those things, like, like every other human being. It's just sometimes 
the person that you listen to or see on television or, or hear on a podcast might be that person a lot of the time, but maybe isn't all of the time. And that's why I believe in giving everyone a chance because I don't know how their day is going. It's a really difficult question, but I think that would be the one thing that people probably would be shocked to know that at all. Well, that just makes you human, Mitch. I am very human. I'm part dog, I Which think. Is, um, <laughs> I think I am. <laughs> I, I love dogs. And I, um, I guess I will end saying that I, no offense to humans out there, but in general, I prefer dogs to humans. And that's probably why we always have two or three dogs running around this house. And we just lost one recently. And then we just adopted two dachshunds uh, two weeks ago, senior dachshunds, because once these dogs are 10 years old, they're very hard to get rescued. Everyone wants the cute little puppy. And I love that we rescue dogs and, and that we that can too. give them a home. I love that too. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end of our broadcast day. I want to say thank you. You absolutely defied expectations. Thank you so much for indulging me and sharing more of your story with really the world today. And most importantly, for giving me control of the reins. I really appreciate it. I personally can't wait for your interview with Jewel. I've been a longtime fan of hers since 96. And on behalf of Mitch, I'm going to sign off. Thank you for having me today. And I'll hand it back over to you. Thank you. And I want everybody to know Nicole came up with this idea. I thought about it for a little bit. And I'm really glad that we did this today, Nicole. It is unusual and definitely more challenging sitting in this chair. But I will tell you, if you want to start a podcast, I would get going because you're really good at it. You did a great job. And I really appreciate you. (laughs) you taking the time out of your schedule to do this. And everyone listening, thank you, as always, for listening to Financially Speaking. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify. And as I say at the end of every show every week, when it comes to saving for your own financial future, remember to pay yourself first. Have a great week. 